Welcome to Sibyline Podcasts, part of our World Risk Register Threat Monitoring Service. These podcasts are released on a weekly basis, covering timely and relevant topics. In these discussions, we hope to shed light on evolving scenarios and provide actionable predictions and implications. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Hello, and thank you for joining us for another Sibyline podcast. In this session, we're going to be talking about Syria, and I'm joined by our two senior Middle East analysts, Noor and Asli, and also our senior Eurasia analyst, Ed. So to start us off with, there was a summit in Istanbul on 27th of October. Asli, what happened there? Yes, Pete, as you said, there was a summit on Syria in Istanbul on October 27th. And um, who joined the summit? German Chancellor Angela Merkel, Russian President Vladimir Putin, French President Emmanuel Macron, and of course, the Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan. And while no major agreements or disagreements were reached among these presidents, um, what happened is that they basically highlighted the importance of the ceasefire that was established on the 15th of October in Idlib, Syria. So can you expand on the ceasefire? Why is that so important? So basically the ceasefire prevented a government operation that was going to take place in Idlib. And it was very well received because it basically helped to prevent another humanitarian crisis, which was a very positive outcome. But why is it so important? Because it basically... Russia and Turkey reached an agreement and they are at the moment have a presence in, in the area. Why is this important for Turkey? Because it, Turkey gets to protect its borders from what Turkey calls Kurdish militia, which are the YPG forces. And they want to have a presence in, in, the, in the area. So that's why the ceasefire is sort of like an importance for all the countries that have a stake in the ongoing conflict. And so Turkey's approach towards Syria, why are they so persistent on establishing this demilitarized zone? And what does it mean for Turkey? What's Turkey's ambition in in Syria? Turkey, from the beginning, wanted to have a longer term presence in Syria. And this was mainly because the Kurdish presence in Syria, the way Turkey saw this, it was basically a danger against its borders, against its own war at home that's been going with the PKK forces. And if the border is compromised somehow, if YPG forces can get across the border, Turkey considered this to be a very serious danger. And not to forget that there's a great domestic support for Erdogan to carry out these military operations against YPG forces in Syria. It actually boosts his popularity. And Erdogan especially needs this after what happened with the US, which was handling of the US pastor Andrew Bunson and giving him back to the US, basically, which effectively cost him a lot of popularity at home. Okay, and Noor, to bring you in, what is Iran's ambitions for Syria and what's their part to play in all of this? Iran at the moment seems to be biding its time. It's struggling a little bit with the upcoming sanctions that are going to take effect from the 4th of November onwards. I think it's quite pragmatic of Iran to kind of wait and see what happens and to ensure that their proxies remain somewhat powerful in Syria. If that starts to be a bit more complicated for them, I anticipate they'll push a bit forward and they'll try and work with Russia a little bit more because it does not want its militias to lose power in Iran because that would effectively weaken its influence in Iraq and in Lebanon and the key conduit between the two countries would kind of be threatened. So at the moment, Iran seems to be waiting and seeing what happens with this whilst ensuring that their proxies continue to operate as they've been operating since they were introduced. Okay, so kind of a policy of of watching and waiting whilst uh, trying to deal with... 
other high priorities on the geopolitical Yeah, side. I think their domestic economic situation and their internal issues within the government are a little bit more important right now. Okay, and Ed, to bring you in, what about Russia? How has Russia performed and what are Russia's ambitions towards Syria? Well, I think as we've talked about before on, on different podcasts we've, we've produced, uh, Russia wants to remain the sort of key uh, stakeholder in the Syrian conflict with kind of leading the diplomatic effort, promoting itself onto the international stage and for mainly for a domestic audience, if not international, setting the perception of it as a return to great power status and all that sort of things. We see that very much with launching the airstrikes previously in Aleppo and other cities in Syria. But now again, we see it kind of amping up its diplomatic presence through the agreements reached with Turkey surrounding Idlib. Okay, and I guess the surprise for this particular summit was that Merkel and Macron were were invited. How important is Europe's influence and what does it mean that there was a European delegation? Well, I think that is, again, perhaps indicative of Russia's success and skillful handling of the situation in Syria. It's managed to go in with a significant amount of force, but with a very kind of low, small footprint comparatively, change the game, and now is seeking to ensure that its diplomatic efforts that it's leading in Astana, in, in Geneva, and in Sochi, the sort of meetings that they've been having, Russia is leading the way, and it's outmaneuvering the UN or American-led efforts to resolve the conflict in Syria. So the presence of Merkel and, and Macron there is, is quite significant, given that Russia's preconditions for having these negotiations is that Assad remains on in at least a sort of transitional sense, which is not possible under the sort of U.S. or uh, U.N.-led negotiations or peace agreements. Uh, So that is quite significant, and I think when we're sort of looking forward to what's next, what does Russia want, the idea would be that, you know, getting some Western money and Western support for the redevelopment of Syria. So if they can couple up with uh, the West accepting Assad because of the the game on the ground that Russia has helped create, and then get Western commitments, that would be a a very positive result for Russia, as opposed to, say, Chinese investment, which would be a competitor with Russia for influence in Syria. Okay, and I suppose, you know, we've talked about the US there, and I think they were the big ones missing from this particular meeting, given that uh, although Rouhani wasn't there from Iran, there were senior representatives from Iran. And I suppose, Ed, you've partly explained that, given that the US approach is dependent on Assad not staying in power. Asli, In terms of the U.S. approach towards Syria, what is the response, particularly from the Turkish view, towards U.S. operations in Syria? So the fact that U.S. has troops in Syria has been a source of tension between Turkey and the U.S. for some time now. The reason for that is the U.S. considers YPG forces their biggest allies in in the country, whereas Turkey is conducting military operations against them. And uh, more than once this has brought Turkey and U.S. sort of in a conflict, in a diplomatic conflict. So what happens right now is that Turkey obviously wants U.S. troops out of Syria because they want to maintain a longer-term presence militarily, which does not really go well with the fact that U.S. military is in there still collaborating with the YPG forces. Okay, and Ed, is that a viewpoint that's mirrored by Moscow? Absolutely. I mean, you know, Russia ideally, um, and these were this sentiment was echoed by President Putin in October, was that all foreign forces should leave Syria, and primarily American forces should leave uh, should leave Syria. So I think, you know, Russia's whole perspective in regards to its relationship with Syria has been centered around the idea of stepping into at the lack of American policy or the lack of American forward thinking on the matter, and they've sort of outflanked them um, on several occasions over the, over the past years. So I think, you know, Russia will continue to sort of try and position itself as the the sort of stakeholder in the conflict and exploit American sort of lack of leadership over resolving the conflict. Okay, so let's talk about the future. Noor, what are the prospects of 
of reconstruction and what are the issues associated with the prospect of a return of refugees from the region back to Syria? I think the prospect of reconstruction is a bit of a mixed bag for the region. On the one hand, Syria, especially the Assad government, have been trying to kind of push this narrative of everything's gone back to normal, we can all resume our lives. So they've been pressuring regional governments such as the Lebanese government to return a large number of refugees back into Syria using pre-established networks between Lebanon and Syria. That's, that's created quite a lot of debate within Lebanon itself. It's been a bit of a source of tension between members of the government and I think that's likely to stay for for the next few months as they try to figure out a solution with refugee returns. Additionally, I foresee that there'll be a significant amount of lucrative contracts being put forward by Syrian businessmen and Syrian government agents to kind of get money back into Syria. As Ed said before, they want people to invest in it. And I think they'd be targeting more Russian and, and Chinese companies rather than Western because I, I, I do foresee some hesitation from Western companies to get involved purely because the conflict has been going on for so long. And th there are a lot of points of contention with Assad staying in power. Okay, so I guess almost looking at post-conflict Iraq, where U.S. influence was very significant, and uh, U.S. contractors were able to go in, albeit still in, in a uh, kind of high-risk uh, scenario. Is that a useful model to follow for the future of Syria, but perhaps, of course, therefore looking at those high-risk contracts being not in such a pervasive environment politically, and actually a much more complex environment with competing international influences? Uh, to an extent, yes. Um, I also think that it'll be quite useful for regional countries to take take on board Syrian reconstruction to an extent. For example, um, opening border crossings, allowing trade to flow through will relax a lot of the supply chain tensions that have been going on in the region, certainly between travel between Jordan and Lebanon and Syria, where Israel isn't really a route taken by a lot of um, trade routes because of the issues between Lebanon and Syria. So to an extent, it, it's beneficial for the region in that it'll just relax a lot of transport issues. But at the same time, there is a hesitation to assume that nothing happened these past few years and kind of go back to business as usual in the short term, at least. And in terms of timescale, are we looking at efforts to uh, return refugees to Syria in the coming months? Or, or are we looking at and, and reconstruction processes sort of starting very soon or, or or are we looking still kind of years years ahead in some ways they already have started right. uh the damascus national museum opened for example i mean it, it sounds like not much but it's actually quite symbolic in that the government wants people to go back even in like t a touristic fashion so and there's a lot of jordanians that have been visiting syria since the opening of the nasib crossing early in, in early october and lebanon has already repatriated a few Syrian refugees, especially in the Bar Valley in the north. So in some ways, this, this has already started. Okay. Um, and it might pick up momentum depending on the regional aspect of the conflict. Okay, interesting stuff. So looking forward then, how does the evolving situation in Syria affect security dynamics in the region? I guess the other, you know, we've already talked about that in terms of the prospects of high-risk contracts and so on. What about domestic trends? Asli, what about the kind of domestic pressures in Turkey going forwards you know are we are we likely to see an increase in in kurdish activity within turkey or you know how's that going to play out that is very much possible, Pete, because at the end of the day, the YPG and PKK are affiliated, and the fact that Turkey continuously carries uh, military operations against YPG forces may trigger some sort of domestic attacks within Turkey as a precaution and basically just um, to sort of 
push Turkey back a little bit. That being said, as far as politics goes in Turkey, it has always been f- pretty firm that Turkey opposition parties, as well as the ruling AKP, is very much for staying in Syria in the longer term and is er- very much for carrying out military operations against the Kurdish militia in Syria. So as far as that goes, I don't see any problems there domestically, but there's de- this definitely heightens the risk of attacks within Turkey carried by Kurdish militia. Okay, just to quantify that a little bit more, uh, you know, we haven't seen many uh, Kurdish attacks in, in Turkey over the last couple of years, I guess. How much of a threat is this? So is this something that's very much controlled by Turkish security forces or, or are, we actually, are we really looking at you know, something significant here? Following from the attacks in Ankara and, of course, the um, Istanbul Atatürk airport, there was a significant increase in security forces all across, especially in the major cities such as Istanbul and Ankara. So that definitely contributed to the fact that we haven't been seeing attacks as of late. But obviously, given the country's geopolitical position, Turkey, we can never say that an attack is highly unlikely in Turkey. It's always a problem. That's why Turkey's insistence on remaining military presence along the border so that Syrian Kurdish forces cannot cross to Turkey easily and basically carry out attacks. Right. So we're looking at a kind of continuation of a latent threat here rather than a kind of a massive spike in in, in attacks or anything like that. Yes, definitely. Okay, perfect. Um, what about supply chains in the region? You know, Syria, kind of an important juncture between all sorts of different economies. Are we looking at a change to supply chain risks or, or even uh, an opening up of, uh, of supply chains through the region? For sure. I mean, the Nessi border crossing opened recently and that used to flow about billions of dollars of trade. It was one of the largest supply chain hubs in the region. Uh, there's a few more along the Syrian-Jordanian border and there's certainly quite a few in Lebanon. I mean, during the conflict, they weren't really threatened that much between Lebanon and Syria. They kind of kept a semi-open border, but pushing the narrative of stabilization and you know, normalization in Syria will prompt businesses to kind of engage a bit more actively in the region, which might, you know, see a bit of a, a boost in supply chain operations, and it, it might actually stabilize a lot of the uncertainty in terms of how can we travel via Syria. It, it will probably relax a lot of people's worries about taking, you know, trans- transporting goods between the areas, as the Syrian government really does not want to see their narrative threatened. They want to keep things as normal and kind of go back to pre-Civil War Syria and move okay. forward. And Noor, just staying with you as a sort of final comment, really, one of the major areas that we haven't really touched on is Israel. And, you know, we've seen, we've seen airstrikes and so on by Israeli forces in, in Syria. What's the future of that? You know, we've written previously about Israeli fears of being encircled by uh, Iranian influence and Russian power-broking to support the Israelis there and so on. What's the future of that? I think the future of Israeli involvement in the region is definitely going to be a sticking point for Iran. As, you know, since kind of mid-2017, Israel's become much more active in terms of containing Iranian influence in Syria. Before that, it kind of let Iran do whatever it felt like doing there. It didn't really see a persistent threat in the region. So I think this slight shift in Israeli policy towards Iran is definitely something that Tehran will be worried about in the coming months. But again, both Iran and Israel do not want to engage in a direct conflict. There's no appetite for conflict between the two. They'd rather provoke each other and, you know, escalate the situation slightly and result in low-level attacks, which might, you know, disrupt transport very temporarily, but neither of them are willing to engage in an outright conflict. There's too much at risk, and 
Iran is not looking to start a territorial war with Israel, and Israel is not looking to start a territorial war with Iran. Okay, really great. Um, Noor, Asli, Ed, thank you very much for your insights there. As ever, if any of our conversation today has provoked any questions or comments, please don't hesitate to get in touch, and we'll be more than happy to respond. Thank you for listening, and we hope you have found this podcast useful. If you would like to learn more about our services, or if you have any questions or feedback, please get in touch at info at